It's such a pleasure to greet you this morning from the congregation of the Riverside Church in the city of New York. I'm Amy Butler, I'm the senior minister there. And um, they would be so happy to know that I'm here this morning. I wonder what they're up to while I'm gone, I always do. I wanna thank Dr. Powery for the invitation to be with you this morning and for the entire team here each one who has been so kind and welcoming to me. It's an honor to be in this pulpit this morning, and I'm grateful to be with you in worship. If you ever have the occasion to visit the nave of the Riverside Church in the city of New York, you should definitely walk all the way to the very front of the cathedral, turn around and look to the very top of the second balcony. When you do that, your eye will quickly be drawn to a massive rendering of what appears to be Jesus, covered in gold. And were you to take a tour of the nave, as I did the very first time I visited the Riverside Church, you would learn that that statue is called Christ in Majesty, and that one day the mastermind of our great cathedral, John D. Rockefeller Jr., walked into his newly built nave, looked up at the second balcony and said, I think that space looks kind of plain up there. It needs a little something, you know? So he went home and fetched an original Jacob Epstein sculpture from his own private collection, had it dipped in 24 karat gold to give it a little extra bling, and stuck it right up there on the wall. It's a great story. Not out of character for John D., by the way. However, I learned coincidentally just this week that not one thing about that story is true. <laughs> I've only been pastor for five years, so give me a break. Christ in Majesty is actually dipped in gold and it is hanging there, but it is only the mold of the original Epstein, which sits at the head of an ark in Landeff Cathedral in Cardiff, Wales. And it was a gift of the artist widow, Lady Epstein, given several years after John Rockefeller died, and installed just a few days after Martin Luther King Jr. stood in our nave and delivered a scathing rebuke of America's three sins, racism, militarism, and materialism. I'm still processing my discovery that the story that I thought I knew is actually not the truth. But in actuality, the question of how Christ in majesty came to be hanging at the back of the nave in the Riverside Church may obscure perhaps the more pertinent question, which is, of course, why there is a gold Jesus hanging in the church in the first place. Why do we humans perpetually insist on creating gods of our own making, institutions that reflect our own privileges, religions, that radiate our own comfort zones, even when the boundaries we draw exclude the very people Jesus explicitly came to include? A good question for this week, yes? Today we're at the fifth Sunday following the Epiphany, this little season of the church year that begins with the Magi following one star in an inky sky and leads us through story after story about Jesus's earthly ministry, turning up the light every week just a little bit brighter. And here we land. This year it's the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, on this special Sunday called Transfiguration. 
One commentator claims this is the most difficult passage to preach all year. I do not agree with him, but I will say this is a pretty strange story. Immediately following Luke's version of the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus decides to take a hike. Now, this isn't unusual. We read in the Gospels incidents after incidents of Jesus regularly exercising, escaping the crowd for some quiet time. And that day, he took three of his disciples with him, Peter, James, and John. When they got to the top of the hill, the text says, Jesus began to pray. My guess is that Peter, James, and John were probably not as holy as Jesus because they got bored and they were about to fall asleep when they noticed that Jesus began to look a little different. His face changed, the text says, and his clothes began to sparkle until they appeared dazzling white. If that wasn't enough, all of a sudden Moses and Elijah showed up and they began talking business, conversation about Jesus' next stop, Jerusalem, and all these strange mentions of his departure. It was a good thing they hadn't completely fallen asleep because Peter, James, and John witnessed the whole glowing event, and Peter got really enthusiastic because that's how Peter was. It isn't every day that your friend starts glowing and heroes of your faith show up. So in his enthusiasm, Peter suggested that the group might construct three dwellings, one for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah, you know, just to mark this special occasion. Well, you can't blame Peter for getting excited. Still, with all the teaching and healing and preaching Jesus had done, you would think that the disciples would have understood by now that Jesus wasn't especially interested in fame or power or political office or even institutions. If they had understood who he was and what he came to teach them, they would have known that Jesus would think Peter's idea of building a dwelling or a monument or anything that diluted the stark challenge of his message, well, that completely missed the point. Though the pronouns in the Greek text are a bit confusing, I think Luke probably meant Peter when immediately after Peter's suggestion, Luke writes, he didn't know what he was saying. It was the height of misunderstanding, of completely missing the point, of shielding his eyes from the light and choosing to see Jesus, not as Jesus had shown himself to them, but the Jesus that Peter preferred, a shiny, glowing, magical, political savior that coincidentally looked exactly like Peter did. I was called to pastor my former congregation, Calvary Baptist Church in Washington, DC, when the church was in the middle of a large renovation and construction project. Before I had arrived, Hundreds of church volunteers spent countless hours cleaning out closets and file cabinets and storerooms and Sunday school classrooms, throwing away decades of accumulated junk, packing away salvageable items and sending them to storage and uncovering treasures. I assure you, 
you would be surprised at what you would find in long, untouched church storage closets. One of the many interesting finds became a large and eclectic collection of framed paintings of Jesus. They were, I guess, originally hanging in classrooms or stashed away in corners or salvaged from the back of closets. I think volunteers didn't throw any of them away when they were packing up because, well, are you even allowed to throw away a picture of Jesus? When the construction finished and the unpacking began, the staff began to take note of all of this Jesus art. It was piling up. So we started collecting all the paintings we found and propping them up in the church library all around the walls. When it was all said and done, we had over 50 paintings of Jesus all in one place. There were many copies of that one. You know the one I'm talking about, the one with Jesus standing on the hillside hair blowing in the wind, baby lamb draped around his shoulders, or Jesus sitting on a rock, beautific children staring up at him in awe, no one throwing a tantrum at all. And there were several of the one, you know the one I mean, with the more dramatic background, the glowing halo behind Jesus's head, his blonde hair is flowing and his blue eyes staring off into the distance thoughtfully. There are at least two copies of the one of Jesus that sort of looks like Bob Marley laughing. And my favorite, a giant Jesus with a picture of the United Nations behind him. We also found a black velvet painting of a snarling Doberman pincher, but that probably does not relate to my point here. With the slight exception of the Bob Marley version of Jesus, which got closest to his real Middle Eastern skin tone, all the pictures we had of Jesus were of someone who looked like a nice white middle-class American you might see in a television commercial. And in every painting, without exception, Jesus looked thoughtful, mild, kind, happy, benign, and almost always glowing. Standing in the church library, surveying all these pictures of Jesus collected in one place, I recall thinking, we must really like this kind of Jesus. The kind of Jesus that looks familiar. A Jesus who's soft, benign, a white Jesus, and certainly, definitely a shiny Jesus. There's no doubt about it. It's one of our favorite things to do, isn't it? to make Jesus into exactly who we'd like him to be. Up there on the mountain that day, Peter, James, and John, they did that too. Mark Throntveit, he's a professor at Old, uh, Old Testament professor at Luther Seminary, points out that on this Sunday, Transfiguration Sunday, we're presented with Jesus on top of a mountain glowing like a magical fairy tale prince. And today is the very last Sunday before we begin the season of Lent, at the end of which we will encounter Jesus again on the top of a mountain, crucified, dead, hanging on a cross in utter devastation. I mean, which Jesus would you prefer? We can't be too hard on Peter, James, and John because you and I do the same thing. We make Jesus ought to be exactly who we wish he would be. 
As you and I stand here on the edge of Lent, beginning this week on Ash Wednesday, it might be good for us to take a hard look at that shiny Jesus and decide whether we have the courage to hear the voice of God booming with exasperation, I imagine, the same voice that Peter, James, and John did when the shine around Jesus started to fade and a cloud covered the mountain. Stop it. This is my son. Listen to him. Stop it with your smug self-righteousness. Stop it with your intractable institutions and your unbendable rules and your walls and your arrogance and your hubris. Stop it. Stop it. A few years ago, a couple of days before Ash Wednesday, Time Magazine published an article about the season of Lent. The article claimed that more people show up to church on Ash Wednesday than any other day of the year, including Easter and Christmas. Who knew? And that the practice of fasting or giving something up for Lent is common and widely observed. Curious about why we do that, the reporter went all the way to the top and talked to Pope Francis asking the Pope what he thought we should be giving up for Lent. He didn't talk about giving up chocolate, carbs, alcohol, Diet Coke. Instead, he suggested that for Lent we give up indifference. I distrust a charity, he said, that costs nothing and does not hurt. Describing the phenomenon he calls a globalization of indifference, Pope Francis writes that Whenever our interior life becomes caught up in its own interests or concerns, there is no longer any room for others, no place for the poor. God's voice is no longer heard. The quiet joy of God's love is no longer felt. And the desire to do good fades. We end up being incapable of feeling compassion for the outcry of the poor or weeping for other people's pain or feeling a need to help them. We end up thinking that it's someone else's responsibility and not our own. It's easy for us to understand why Peter, James, and John were so taken with their shiny Jesus because we like a shiny Jesus too. It's more exciting. It's considerably easier. It's much more fun. Make no mistake, friends, we are headed for glory, healing, hope, resurrection. We are a people who insist that out of death comes life always. And maybe, maybe when we get there, Jesus will look shiny. But the way there is no trip to Disneyland. On this Transfiguration Sunday, as you and I stand on a mountain with Jesus glowing and we look toward Lent, toward that other mountain ahead of us, hear again the words of Jesus, words that he spoke just before they climbed the mountain that day. If any of you want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will save it. This is the not-so-shiny word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen.